Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. People v. Agape A. Towns, decided May 7, 2019. Stein, J. On this appeal, we are asked to decide whether defendant was denied the right to a fair trial when the trial court negotiated and entered into a cooperation agreement with a co-defendant requiring that individual to testify against defendant in exchange for a more favorable sentence. We hold that the trial court abandoned the role of a neutral arbiter and assumed the function of an interested party, thereby creating a specter of bias that requires reversal. Defendant was convicted, upon a jury verdict, of six counts of first-degree robbery after he and the co-defendant robbed three restaurant employees at gunpoint. Although some aspects of the robbery were captured on surveillance video, the faces of the perpetrators were covered and the victims were unable to identify defendant. However, the co-defendant testified for the people at trial, admitting to his own involvement and identifying defendant as his accomplice. Prior to trial, the trial court negotiated a plea agreement directly with the co-defendant, under which the co-defendant pleaded guilty to the entire indictment in exchange for a determinate sentence within the range of 9 to 15 years in prison. The trial court advised the co-defendant that the sentence imposed would be left to the court's discretion entirely based upon the co-defendant's level of cooperation in the prosecution of defendant, explaining that, if the co-defendant testified candidly and honestly and cooperated with the district attorney's office in telling the truth, the court had every intention of imposing the lowest end of the term. On the other hand, the court stated that, if the co-defendant failed to cooperate or to testify truthfully based upon the information available to the court, that being any statements that you have already made or how it matches against physical evidence or other testimony in the case, and I determine that you are not being truthful, the sentence would be greater than nine years. The trial court further informed the co-defendant that one of the primary touchstones of its determination concerning the co-defendant's truthfulness and cooperation would be the co-defendant's previously recorded statements to police. At trial, defendant moved to preclude the co-defendant's testimony, arguing, among other things, that the cooperation agreement demonstrated that the court had abdicated its responsibility to act in a neutral and detached manner. After the trial court denied defendant's motion, the co-defendant testified consistent with the co-defendant's previous statements to the police and identified defendant from the restaurant's surveillance footage. The details of the co-defendant's agreement with the court were revealed to the jury during his testimony. Notably, the people elicited testimony from the co-defendant establishing that the co-defendant had not entered into an agreement with the prosecutor or anyone else from the district attorney's office. In addition, prior to deliberations, the court acknowledged in its instructions to the jury that the court has entered into an agreement with a prosecution witness, namely, the co-defendant, emphasis added. Defendant was convicted as noted above. Defendant moved to set aside the verdict, asserting, among other things, that the court improperly injected itself into the proceedings by entering into an agreement with the co-defendant, which influenced the co-defendant's testimony at defendant's trial and prejudiced defendant's due process rights. 
The court denied the motion, reasoning that defendant was mistaken when he state d that there existed a cooperation agreement between the c ort and the co-defendant when, in fact, it was nothing more than a sentence commitment after the co-defendant pleaded guilty. The court rejected defendant's claim that its acceptance of the guilty plea and sentencing commitment made the court a second prosecutor in the courtroom, explaining that courts routinely accept guilty pleas and make sentencing commitments, in criminal cases and defendant's characterization that it was improper for the court to do so here ha d no basis in fact or law. On defendant's appeal, the appellate division affirmed 151 AD 3D 1638 4th Department 2017, that court rejected the trial court's characterization of the agreement and criticized, in the strongest possible terms, the conduct of the court, in personally negotiating and entering into a quid pro quo cooperation agreement with the co-defendant whereby the court promised to sentence the co-defendant within a specific range in exchange for his testimony against defendant. Nevertheless, the appellate division up held the judgment of conviction, explaining that it could not conclude on this record that defendant was deprived of a fair trial by the co-defendant's testimony, nor could it conclude that the court in essence vouched for the truth of that testimony. The court reasoned that, because the trial court's conduct occurred wholly outside the presence of the jury, it did not assume the appearance and role of a prosecutor in the course of defendant's trial. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal 30 NY 3D 1120 2018, and we now reverse. Defendant asserts that the trial court effectively stepped into the role of prosecutor and impliedly vouched for the trial testimony of the co-defendant, thereby violating defendant's fundamental constitutional right to a fair trial before a neutral and detached magistrate. He maintains that the appellate division's analysis improperly focused on whether the trial court's conduct took place before the jury, rather than on whether the court improperly participated in the prosecution by taking affirmative steps to secure defendant's conviction. Defendant argues that the trial court's error of entering into a cooperation agreement with the co-defendant and inducing that individual to testify against defendant, viewed objectively, requires reversal because the risk of bias was too high to be constitutionally tolerable Ripo v. Baker. We agree. A fair trial in a fair tribunal is a basic requirement of due process in Ray Murchison. This court has emphasized that t he right of every person accused of crime to have a fair and impartial trial before an unbiased court and an unprejudiced jury is a fundamental principle of criminal jurisprudence. People v. De Jesus, quoting People v. McLaughlin. Not only must judges actually be neutral, they must appear so as well. People v. Novak. The pertinent inquiry in that regard is not whether the judge is actually, subjectively biased, but whether the average judge in the same position is likely to be neutral, or whether there is an unconstitutional potential for bias quoting Caperton V.A.T. Massey Cole Co., C. Williams v. Pennsylvania. Questions concerning the objective neutrality of a court often arise in the context of actions undertaken by the court during trial. In People v. De Jesus, for example, we held that the defendant was deprived of a fair trial when the trial court's caustic remarks directed at defense counsel cast a pall of suspicion over the defendant's case and unfairly burdened the defendant with the obligation, not only of rebutting the proof of the people, but also of countering the implications imputed by the court. While this court did not foreclose a trial court's active role in the resolution of the truth, we cautioned that care should be assiduously exercised lest the t real j Udge's conduct, in the form of words, actions or demeanor, diverts or itself becomes an irrelevant subject of the jury's focus. 
We further emphasize that the bench must be scrupulously free from and above even the appearance or taint of partiality. More recently, in People v. Arnold, this court held that a trial court abused its discretion by calling its own witness at trial when it assumed the party's traditional role of deciding what evidence to present, and introduced evidence that had the effect of corroborating the prosecution's witnesses and discrediting defendant on a key issue. We explained that, a L.T. Huffa law will allow a certain degree of judicial intervention in the presentation of evidence, the line is crossed when the judge takes on either the function or appearance of an advocate at trial. In the related context of recusal, we have held that, under principles of due process, a judge may not act as appellate decision-maker in a case over which the judge previously presided at trial Novak. We clarified that, in determining whether to recuse, courts must evaluate whether a serious risk of actual bias, based on objective perceptions and considering all of the circumstances alleged, rises to an unconstitutional level quoting Caperton. Applying that standard, we concluded that there was a clear abrogation of our state's court structure that guarantees one level of independent factual review as of right, and held that the judges' dual trial and appellate roles created a facial appearance of impropriety which conflicted impermissibly with the notion of fundamental fairness see also Rippo, Williams. Although this case presents unique concerns, the same guiding principles apply. It is undisputed that, as the appellate division concluded, the trial court personally negotiated and entered into a quid pro quo cooperation agreement with the co-defendant whereby the court promised to sentence the co-defendant within a specific range in exchange for his testimony against defendant 151 AD 3D at 1639. In so doing, the trial court improperly assumed the advocacy role traditionally reserved for counsel Arnold, 98 NY2D at 68 and ventured from its own role as a neutral arbiter stationed above the clamor of counsel or the partisan pursuit of procedural or substantive advantage De Jesus, 42 NY2D at 523-524. Indeed, whatever its subjective intentions, the trial court effectively procured a witness in support of the prosecution by inducing the co-defendant to testify concerning statements the co-defendant made to police which identified defendant as one of the robbers in exchange for the promise of a more lenient sentence. Significantly, by tying its assessment of the truthfulness of the co-defendant's testimony to that individual's prior statements to police, the trial court essentially directed the co-defendant on how the co-defendant must testify in order to receive the benefit of the bargain. Point four. Under these circumstances, the trial court's conduct conflicted impermissibly with the notion of fundamental fairness Novak. That is, by assuming the function of an interested party and deviating from its own role as a neutral arbiter, the trial court denied defendant his due process right to a fair trial in a fair tribunal in Ray Murchison. This error is not subject to harmless error review and requires reversal see People v. Crimmins, Novak, Williams. In light of our decision, we need not reach defendants' claim that the trial court's actions violated the separation of powers doctrine and, because this matter must be remitted to county court for a new trial before a different judge, we render no opinion on the remaining issues raised by defendant in his appeal. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be reversed and the case remitted to county court for further proceedings in accordance with this opinion. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.